Welcome to MHM Podcast Network on MovieHouseMemories.com. Podcast for pod people. Our feature presentation begins now. to another episode of Movie House Memories, the podcast, where we look back and review the films that we think are the most important films in cinema history. I'm Patrick, and this week, finally, for the first time in quite some time, all four people who spent a large portion of their lives in darkened movie theaters are with me again for the first time in several months. First, he's our resident lumberjack and the man who sees symbolism in his cornflakes. He's one of the co-hosts of Criterion Critics and Lunchtime Movie Review podcasts here on the MHN Podcast Network, Bobby Taylor. I'm looking up into the sky to make sure there there are no falling lights. (laughs) Well, it could be because of a faulty wiring system or sabotage. One way or the other. I don't know. I find it suspicious that Shane is here this week. Maybe. I don't know. Could be. (laughs) Also with us, uh, she's appeared as one of the co-hosts of both the Sunday Seconds with the Duke and Golden Age of the Silver Screen podcast here on the MHN Podcast Network. The sole female voice of the show and my podcast better half, Lori Flores. Hello. Always always witty, Lori. Always witty. Always witty. Yep, that's me. Also with us, he's one of the co-hosts of Male Bonding, the James Bond retrospective podcast here on the MHN Podcast Network. You can follow him on Twitter at Haybucker, Matt Palmer. This movie, uh, guys, has convinced me to work product placement into my everyday life because <laughs> you can never be too careful. <laughs> and finally, the man who's always willing to get up early in the morning to do a podcast with his American brothers and sisters. He regularly appears on all the podcasts here on the uh, podcast network. You can follow him on Twitter at movie underscore analyst, Shane Adam Bassett. I do like getting up early, but it's afternoon where I am right now. So good afternoon, and how's it going to end? <laughs> well, I can't keep track of time when it's in on a completely different day from me at any point in time. So, <laughs> all right, no worries at all. <laughs> all right, welcome everyone. And before we get started, we'd like to thank all the returning listeners to the show and welcome all new listeners to Movie House Memories. Thanks for downloading us and giving us a try. We appreciate your time and attention and hope you keep on listening and following us on Pinterest or Twitter at MH Memories. On either one of those social media outlets, you can keep yourselves informed about our occasional written film reviews and film summaries, news on upcoming theatrical releases and trailers, and information on many upcoming podcasts on the MHN Podcast Network. Additionally, you can now subscribe to our account on YouTube, where we are now posting our podcasts exclusively. If you subscribe to our account there, you can get updates as to when we post new material. You can give us a like or a dislike or possibly leave us a comment about the film we're reviewing or a suggestion for a film that you think should be in the one of the, one of the top 100 films of all time. Of course, we always like the uh, feedback that is positive, but we appreciate anything anyone has to say about any of our little shows. Now, with the horrible business out of the way, let's get on to Bobby's next pick for one of the greatest films of all time. 1998's The Truman Show, 
with Jim Carrey and Laura Liddy. And Bobby, do you have a summary for us? I do. It's somewhat short, which is good. Oh, so okay. Better, better than normal. Can you tell me a story? Welcome to the Truman Show. Truman Burbank is the most famous face on television, except he doesn't know it. From birth, he is the unaware star of a 24-7 reality show where everything and everyone he knows is a paid actor, prop, or paid advertisement with every moment of his life broadcast worldwide for a rabid viewing audience to watch his every move. Truman is married to his all-American high school sweetheart, Merrill, and he late-night golfs and drinks beer with his from-childhood BFF, Marlon, in a leave-it-to-beaver, carefree environment. Surrounding Truman in the idyllic, tiny seaside town of Seahaven Island is a literal army of extra actors that make sure Truman's life is front and center within a huge man-made dome with over 5,000 hidden cameras. The entire operation is overseen by the egomaniacal, godlike creator and producer, Kristoff, who makes sure every second of Truman's perfect life is carefully scripted and choreographed in this real-time soap opera where everyone is in on the act except Truman himself. But all is not so perfect in Truman's life when he starts realizing strange phenomena that makes him question if he's somehow being watched. Stage lights fall randomly from the sky, rainstorms that drench only him. His deathly fear of water that surrounds the entire island, preventing him from ever leaving. Uh, everyone he turns to assures him he's being paranoid, even though people whom he has never met know everything about him. But as Truman starts to understand that strange and powerful forces are determined to keep him in Sea Haven forever at all costs, he plots a way to escape to find his one true love who was taken from him in high school, and he's determined to see what's finally outside Sea Haven Island. However, it may take a miracle for him to escape as everyone in town and even the weather itself seems willing to stop at nothing to keep Truman a prisoner within his own highly rated television show. And in case we don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. All right. Films are influenced by the times they are made in, and we look back at some of the big news events in Lori Flores' Headlines of the Times. The year was 1998. 77-year-old former astronaut John Glenn, who was the first American to orbit the Earth, orbited the Earth again in the Space Shuttle Discovery. The crew of the Endeavour shuttle connected the first two modules of the International Space Station. Notable deaths in 1998 included Gene Autry, Sonny Bono, Frank Sinatra and Florence Griffith Joyner. The American Film Institute announced its list of the top 100 films of all time. Citizen Kane topped their list. The film, Titanic, became the then highest grossing film of all time and won a record tying 11 Academy Awards, including Best Picture and Director. Other films released that year included Armageddon, Saving Private Ryan, There's Something About Mary, Godzilla, Rush Hour, Goodwill Hunting, Mulan, As Good As It Gets, and Bobby's pick, The Truman Show. And that's 1998. I forgot Shakespeare in Love. Uh, sure. 
Okay. I think we're all trying to forget Shakespeare in Love. <laughs> no, that was a good movie. It, no, it was a good movie. It was not Best Picture, but it was a good movie that year. All right. We usually start by talking about the casting, and uh, I'll turn it over to Bobby to talk about Jim Carrey playing Truman Burbank. Bobby, what did you think of his performance in this film? Well, the fact that that Peter Weir, the director, held off for an entire year waiting for Jim Carrey to to film two other films so that he could star in this, I think was in the exact right choice. I think Jim Carrey was perfect in the in the role. The fact that this was one of his very first, if not his very first, dramatic role uh, after being uh, Ace Ventura and uh, in all all of his shtick uh, comedy films. I thought he came off as somebody who you believed, um, you you cheered for, you saw his heart break at many times throughout the film, and I genuinely felt like this was somebody who I could watch twenty four seven for thirty years of his life and go, okay, that's the guy. So I thought he was absolute one hundred percent perfection. Yeah, he he did a duo a wonderful job in this film. And I agree with what Bobby said about I, you could see his heart breaking at times. But then when he got really goofy, I was reminded that I was watching Jim Carrey. <laughs> Just that that voice kind of reminded me. But but that's not his fault. He did a great job. And um, I really I really liked him in this. This is the first time I've ever seen this movie. Wow. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow, that's cool. I, I think he was a great pick it's he's the only person who could play this role and that still be this movie right you cast anyone else as as truman and you're going to have a different movie on your hands just i think because of the unique kind of comedic talent that jim carrey is and i use unique as a value neutral term i like him i know some people don't but there isn't really another jim carrey out there so you know, I like the way this movie turned out, so I like the casting of Jim Carrey. If you if you change him with any other actor, you're going to have a, a different tone um, one way or another. So it, it was something that I think ultimately worked. It would be kind of fun to see what could have happened with another actor, but in, in this case, I think it was a good casting call. Yeah, 100%. What everyone said so far, I, I can't add too much more other than it was a risk in a way, because he hadn't done any drama other than a television movie previously called Doing Time on Maple Drive. Everything else he'd done before that was basically a comedy or light relief. So even though this has its light moments, it's still a pretty dramatic role, and he he just held his own. He was so good. You know, I would agree with a lot what Matt just said, is that if you'd cast anybody else, even if you'd gone with Robin Williams, which I would say is, is about as close as you could get to an actor who could do comedy and drama, but add that kind of under layer of just comic relief. This is a very drastically different role. And because it was Jim Carrey and because of the films that he'd done before this, that I think it brought in an audience that could just accept it. And I, I much like probably Bobby and Matt, I like Jim Carrey. I, I really do. Even when he does Ace Ventura or the mask or, Bruce Almighty or uh, Liar Liar, I you know when he does slapsticky roles, 
Uh, I, I, I like him in those roles, but I've also liked a lot of his dramatic roles. I think he's a very, very skilled actor. And this was a very unique project, which found the perfect actor to bring in an audience and to make this relatable to that audience. But what about Ed Harris playing Kristoff? He is a, an amazing actor, and I don't think that was an easy role to play. And I think he he did a great job, and he was totally unlikable, that character. <laughs> I really like Ed Harris. I, I, I don't mind Ed Harris. I don't think this was a particularly challenging role. Um, I think he played it as well as, as any number of people might have. And I, I don't think he was as indispensable as, as say, Jim Carrey was, but he did fine. Yeah, I um, I have to disagree with Matt. I think it was a pretty challenging role at times because you have to believe the guy, and he was full of power. Like Laurie said, uh, he he was really good, and, and you believed him. Um, he was that good that, you know, you just – I was sucked into his power trip as well. So was he going to let him go? Was he not going to let him go? You know, that kind of thing, so – no, I thought Ed Harris was brilliant. But when isn't he? Pretty much he's all the time. Right. When he when he used that God voice, yeah. that was so creepy. Yeah. Well, if it'll help anybody visualize just what Ed Harris did in the role is imagine Dennis Hopper playing the same character because that's who was cast until really? the day the day before shooting. And uh, Ed Harris was called in they, literally the Friday before they were shooting on the Monday. They lost Dennis Hopper. He quit over star reasons. <laughs> and Ed Harris came in over the weekend. They gave him a 10-page back story and said, what can you do with it? He came in and became Kristoff. And I think that uh, – I, I will agree with what Shane said. I think this is a very challenging role that even though we've seen Ed Harris play – character similar to this i think that he was a, an inspired choice and the fact that he played him so strong and like laurie said that voice uh, the god voice he he played god very well that was not a godlike personality it was just he he was megamaniacal like i said in my opening and he carried it and and was very very well cast well I will agree with Matt in that I, I don't think there was a lot to do. I, I don't think he did a bad job, but I don't think the role required a lot of Ed Harris. I mean, he, I like Ed Harris much like you guys. I like him in a lot of things. I didn't dislike him in this role, but I think Jim Carrey was a much more stellar performance. And this was pretty even keel that there wasn't, you know, as far as emoting, I didn't think that he did as nearly as much as Jim Carrey. It wasn't a bad performance. It just wasn't a lot to do. And I do think it's a much better choice than Dennis Hopper. But I think that universally goes across any film. If you replace, <laughs> replace Ed Harris uh, or, or Dennis Hopper with Ed Harris, I think the film starts to increase uh, immediately. Um, you know, even speed, even speed, you know, having Ed Harris say pop quiz, hot shot, you know, let's, it, it would have been a better film. <laughs> Easy writer. Easy writer. <laughs> That's a shitty fucking film. <laughs> Overrated. Overrated. Uh, what about Laura Linney playing one of the few female roles in the film? I I liked her. I think she brought something very unique to the role, not unlike Jim Carrey, not on that magnitude. But she kind of had a, 
you know, a little bit of a, a little more lightheartedness that that wore down over time. And I think her her performance was was actually really, and it, it wasn't subtle, but it was it was engrossing, and um, the way she played it was was really perfect. And she's got, I think, just a above average comedic timing that I think let her play off of Carrie exceptionally well. So she was she was very well cast. Yeah, like Clara Linney, uh, another one of the spot-on casting decisions made in this movie. Uh, I think her losing it um, eventually because although she was a paid actor to B's wife and then talking about getting pregnant, and it was just all believable. But then, you know, I like Laura Linney. She was really good. She expressed so many different emotions during this film. It's no wonder she's become such a great actor she is now. I'll agree with both guys. I really like Laura Linney in general, but in this role, she it was a nuanced role because she was – I think she and Noah Emmerich had a very similar story that it was very difficult for – Hollywood actors to pull off, which is you've got a real life character playing a fake character who's playing a real character in a, yeah. in a reality show, and that is so hard to pull off where you you don't see the holes. And I thought both of those characters, um, Laura, I thought was a little better than Noah at it, but both were excellent. Is I, I just thought they were they were really good, and they made Jim Carrey that much better by being believable as his closest allies in the in the show. So I, I really enjoyed it, and to find out that Laura Linney put so much backstory into her character is probably why she came off so good in the role. So very very proud of her. Well done. She never disappoints. She's amazing in, in everything I've ever seen her in. And this is is no different. Um, she just, just brought so much. I mean, there's just so much to that character and so many layers. And I really think that for, um, I, I can't see another actress in that role. You know, I, I do love Laura Linney in many, many projects. I think she's a, a very talented and great actress. I mean, this was fairly early on. I think this was after Primal Fear. Shane, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Primal Fear was in the early 90s. Was it? Was that it that 95, much? 96. Yeah. yeah. Definitely after Congo. <laughs> and I'm trying to think of the <laughs> earliest film that I saw her in. Oh, she was in A Simple Twist of Fate, which is not a very good Steve Martin film. <laughs> <laughs> but you know this is cute eh, it was okay yeah, but this is one of the earlier roles of her but i mean she distinguished herself to me in Pr primal fear which came before this it was very distinctly different i liked it and i agree with the nuances this was a difficult role to play is you know playing a character playing uh, you know a character in a film that's supposed to be playing a different character you know it there's a lot of nuance there and sometimes i thought she did much better with it than that I think there is a lot of, and possibly we'll get into this in Matt's discussion of the moral universe of the kind of like uh, interesting possible subplots that what you could, you know, what the, what this character could have done if, you know, if she was getting pregnant and things like that with the Truman's baby, that really, I, I think it's the, the morality of what they're doing, I thought was interesting that you could discuss about that, although they didn't really touch on that directly. Uh, but I, I thought that if you had an actress who could play that and they did, 
that they should have gone there and they ultimately chose not to, but I liked her in the film. I'm, I'm, and I'll say I liked her better than Ed Harris as well. But once again, if she replaced uh, Dennis Hopper, the film gets better. It's just the way it is. <laughs> All right. What about Matt's moral universe, Matt? Well, I, I think there's, there's two angles that I think, uh, you could approach the movie. One, one of them, it's a, you know, it's a movie about taking the red pill, which is the, uh, the old metaphor from the matrix where Neo's given the choice of taking the red pill, which will expose him to reality as it is, or, or subjecting himself to a, a, a comfortable delusion. Ultimately Truman makes that choice and that's how the show ends. It ends with him choosing, I, I guess, a, a more natural form of reality than the one that's been constructed by, Ed Harris's character. There might be a political angle there as well, where freedom for its own sake is preferable to even a, a well-constructed but less free uh, culture or society where, where Jim Carrey can stay where he is and have whatever he wants, but he would rather accept greater risk in, in exchange for the ability to write his own script to a greater extent. So I think, you know, the, I mean, you, there's there's a lot of different angles you could take as well as far as what the lengths they were willing to go to construct this reality for him. And despite the fact that they offered him what was a, a very pleasant existence, it wasn't his. Um, and he didn't have any meaningful ability to choose what was going to be his. So I think the movie ultimately very, very clearly comes down on the side of greater choice, greater freedom. And, you know, accepting, accepting truth over a constructed narrative. Shane? <laughs> I knew you'd come to me after that. Well, there's an order uh, to it, alphabetical. I'm, I'm hopeless at this sort of morals when it comes to movies, but Matt's made me think a little bit. Definitely agree. Uh, no, I think I... I, I, I disagree with you. I think that you are as intuitive as the rest of us when it comes to this stuff. <laughs> but Matt Matt goes sometimes deeper than I think anyone can. <laughs> uh, now, just listening to him had me transfixed, so uh, I really can't add to it. Bobby? You're too kind, Shane. You're far too kind. <laughs> Thank you. I will totally agree with what Matt said. Uh, and just like Shane, it's, it's, uh, it, that's – very astute, and I really liked what the correlation you drew between the red pill and the blue pill from the Matrix. I hadn't thought of that part before, so that was extremely well stated as also. Um, one thing that I do uh, wish that we could have seen uh, that might have also weighed in on, on what Matt is looking at was uh, – well, actually – Two things. One is the duality of the characters that are playing both the real character and the actor on set. There's a lot of stuff that we don't see in the film that they shot that are deleted scenes and or in former drafts of the screenplay, which was a much darker original screenplay. And I think that that would also weigh in on it because part of it that was really a, a very moral statement which was done by Kristoff was not only were they intending on having Truman's baby on set they were going to go to a two channel reality channel so it's going to be Truman on one's on one channel and the baby on the other and in the conversation in one of the deleted scenes Marlon asks so when Truman dies do we go back to a single 
channel. And by that statement is right up Matt's alley of, of moral universe. They're intending on killing off a, a main character, a, a real life on just for the ratings. I didn't think of anything that Matt said. <laughs> that was really good. Really deep. Was this was before like Survivor and stuff, right? Before Correct. the reality television. Well, well, you had like Real World on MTV, but it was before the, what I would say the heyday or the boom of reality television that came around in the early two thousands. So I guess you know it just kind of there's there's something debatable about reality TV, and but I think the what Matt touched on with Truman was that it wasn't his choice and he didn't know that he was the show. Yeah. So it's a, it's a fascinating concept I don't, and a moral dilemma. Yeah. I don't have anything to add, so I'll pass on. That. <laughs> I, <laughs> that was really good, Matt. No, that was Bobby. What about hey, symbolism and, and hidden meanings? Uh, I have a couple, there's, there's lots in the movie. And to be honest with you, I barely even touched on what, there's so many symbols in that movie, it's insane. But uh, the ones that I've got are – I have Kristoff is the godlike character in control of Truman's universe. But he also tends to take the role of Mary, Mother Mary as delivering Truman to the world and even that of Jesus himself by controlling the weather as Truman sails to his exit. Um, I have the magazines uh, Truman's using for inspiration to remember Lauren are some of his only real-life vices that are allowed in-world. Uh, they could have taken those magazines away at any time, but they symbolized not only his subversion to his marriage, but also provided a plot point for Kristoff to exploit by bringing in the other woman to make Truman cheat with the new actress brought on. And the entire soundstage symbolized Truman's prison, but it was his fear that held him back from exploring further. By Truman using clever devices to overcome his own fears to travel further than Kristoff expected, he was realizing where those shackles were and decided to overcome his fears to set sail into the beyond, uh, come hell or high water. And then also one statement that was really interesting that I read uh, was that the the town uh, uh, Sea Haven Island has this uh, banner over the entrance to the town, and it, it's I think it's Latin. Uh, but it actually says one for all and all for one, which symbolized Truman himself was one for all for everybody to watch and all for one. There, The entire world was uh, was there, especially all those actors with their with their roles, their income. Everything was all tied into one Truman Burbank. So I thought that was fascinating as well. I thought Chris was here for a minute. So. <laughs> <laughs> No, that was also really good, Bobby. This is a such a unique and and interesting film, and just the the plot and just so much discussion can be from it. And just yeah, you guys, you and Matt both did a really good job with that. I have nothing to add. Bobby, I like what you said about the magazines. It's funny how he's kind of trying to reconstruct this uh, this girl he he briefly fell in love with almost almost like a, an instinctual Ed Harris like act of trying to create this false version of the thing he loves. I don't, I don't know if, if, if that was supposed to be, you know, him instinctively realizing 
the nature of the reality he was in or if it was just a, a cute thing they came up with. But I thought that was an interesting point you made. Um, the only thing I reckon I'll add is it's basically he it's about being yourself, which he Truman is being himself, but he's not really being himself because he's prompted to do so many different things. So even though he's happy and friendly and you know, talks to everyone, it's being him being himself but not being himself, so he's not free. And there's fences everywhere, not just picket fences, but there's so many fences and, and, and barriers in this movie. So he's stuck in there. He's trapped. And the dogs, the dogs that come after him and that jumps on him and that all the time, it's like he's trapped all the time, and that's what I noticed. And also... I don't know if it's symbolism or not, but the, the library scene where he first talks to the beautiful girl, Lauren, uh, she is like um, Pretty in Pink when Andrew McCarthy sees Molly Ringwald for the first time. You know, kind of building on what Shane said, that was, that's something that I saw in this is kind of this, I, as much as this film is about control and control of Truman, is that, you know, he was very much a Matt, or Matt, a Matt, Sorry, sorry, Matt. A mouse in, you know, a maze is that, you know, it, it, they've influenced him so much and to the nth degree that, you know, who is Truman to the point? Does Truman even know who he is as much as he may want to know what he is, is that does do the things that he likes and the things he enjoy is is that what he truly likes and that he enjoys or is that because it's been force fed to him in so many different ways, including his own trauma, you know, of his fear of water? Uh, because it was scripted for him that they they created that and reinforced that so that 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 he would always be afraid of leaving the island, if you will, and and, and I thought exactly that, entrapment. Yeah, exactly, and you know that the from that perspective is like once, uh, and I, I'm going to get to this when we talk about the ending about what happens after he walks out that door. You know that the, the ultimate question is. You know, is he going to be happier? Is he going to find himself or is he going to find himself in a world that is a, a, a literal culture shock to him? But before we get to that ending, <laughs> sorry, I know you want to talk about Bobby, but it's going to, it's going to come up in the ending of the film section. Shane, uh, the music score written by yes. Buckhard von Dalwitz, a guy I cannot say I'm familiar with. <laughs> no, I'm not familiar with him either. Uh, there's no way that's his real name. <laughs> <laughs> well, I believe it is. Um, Buckard von Dulwitz. I took particular notice of the score because it's been such a while since I've seen this film in full and I knew it had a good good score, good music, and I was right. He's a German composer, but he must reside in Australia, and I'm not just say, saying that because he's all his um, music, he's credits uh, Australian television shows or movies. So he must, obviously, because Peter Weir, the director, is an Aussie, used him and uh, has used him on some other Peter Weir projects as well. So um, I like the music a lot, but I'm not familiar with the composer's work. Uh, there's some really high and low moments in, in the score. Um, there's a lot of classical music, though, classic classical music from Beethoven and Chopin as well ch um, that chimes in on the score, so... Yeah, I overall I liked his what he's composed, but then I like how they'd use some classics in there as well. Well, to add to what Shane just said is the interesting choice that they had of putting the classics in there was specifically because if you're running a reality show twenty four seven, the rights would have 
eaten up all of the profits from the show. So That's by having true. classics, yeah, yeah with a, by having a classical soundtrack that Truman public was listening domain. to, is public domain. It was free, so they could play that all the time for Truman. And so he never knew rock and roll and all that uh, very much. So everything was domain free. So that was an interesting plot point. But I will agree that I. I watched this film um, – I've seen this film several times, but this one I really paid attention to the music, and I absolutely loved every every note that they placed into this film. Every place that it was in, it, it, it meant – it was meant to be there, and it made this show stronger, um, mm-hmm. especially the moments where, where Truman was figuring it out, and he just kind of would freeze, and all of a sudden he, you know, he puts his hand in front of the bus, and the, and the, the score just soars instantly, and all of a sudden you know, okay, he's, he's realizing that he's – the world is, is rotating around him. It was really powerful, so I very much appreciated this soundtrack. You say it soared, and it did, but it never went over the top. Even Correct. when it was on the boat trying to survive, they could have really pumped it up and made yeah. it overbearing, but it was never overbearing. That that's the thing. I think like Star Wars when we're talking about uh, John Williams scores and things. I mean, they boom, and you know, it's it's part of the, the part of Star Wars is John Williams' soundtrack. In this film, the the less is more, and it just – they put it in exactly the right place, played it as loud as they needed to for the moment, and then they moved mm-hmm. to the next moment. And I think that was what was so powerful about this soundtrack. I loved the soundtrack. It was so beautiful, and just every song just really added to the atmosphere and the mood, and I would buy the soundtrack. It was beautiful. You know, it, it didn't. It didn't uh, distract me from the movie, so that that's a win, uh, as far as I'm concerned. I love very few soundtracks, and this one did not uh, distract me from the movie, and so I'll I'll, I'll give it a thumbs up. <laughs> well, I I thought the music was very it suited the film very well, and I did like the use of classical music music in it, but I don't give credit to the the composer for that. And then I when I looked up the name of the the composer, I was like, who? and go, yeah exactly yeah like i'm surprised because this was a big hit i mean this was a well-regarded film in its time it's it wasn't a small little niche film it wasn't an art house film although it could be argued to be a, one of the more expensive art house art house films and looking at his you know his resume the only other film that i saw on there that i recognize and there is a ton of television series on there is the way back and that but that was the only one and i couldn't i can't recall the score for that film at all uh, so I, I can't say that this film stayed with me as far as like, oh, I need this the soundtrack, but I thought it suited the film very, very well. And they hit the notes, uh, uh, you know, ironically, uh, when they needed to for the film. And I thought it was a pretty good score. But uh, let's get to talking about the ending of the film. Film ends with, uh, you know, Truman walking through the edge of the set, if you will, and a door by the water you know, presumably to say goodbye to this. Uh, I wonder what you guys thought of the ending. And I, I have a question of what do you think happens next to Truman? I think um, they showed Lauren running towards him. I think they're going, they're going to meet and he's going to have some issues, but they're going <laughs> to live happily ever after. <laughs> some issues, some issues. <laughs> he's going to need therapy. Uh, yeah. Matt. 
I think Jack Ruby is waiting for him on the other <laughs> side of that door. <laughs> I, I don't know. Uh, I like the way they ended it. I think I think that was as good of an ending as they could have hoped for. Either that or, or some kind of Jack Ruby-like situation would have been the best of endings. Well, some publicist will meet him on the other side of the door, um, usher him through all the security, and eventually he'll end up with Lauren. He'll have a book deal. He'll be on all the talk shows, and I think he will move completely <laughs> away from everybody, and they'll live together happily ever after. He'll clean up in a massive lawsuit. Yeah, and eventually he'll meet uh, Christoph as well, the nemesis. Did you like the ending? Oh, I loved it. Yeah, I, I, I love it. I love movies how they just stop uh, or leave you thinking. Some people hate endings like that where they don't have a resolution. But personally, if it's a good enough movie to do it, and it is, I think it was perfect ending. You could have seen the happy ending and them jumping in each other's arms and stuff, but it worked for me. Well, I'll say that the ending that is in the film is the perfect ending for it. I think it was exactly the way it was supposed to be, especially his his tagline at the very end where he signed off and walked out into the blackness was exactly how it should be. And everybody's celebrating except for Christoph, who lost his golden goose. But I think that it allows us to ha- to believe that Truman may be on to you know into the real world and now can finally become he's he's a free man. But to, on top of that, what I will say is that the Truman character was actually written. The inspiration for the Truman character was Michael Jackson, um, where he was basically raised in front of a camera and never had a moment to himself. And the older he got, the harder it was to survive. And once he was basically out in public, people wouldn't let him uh, have a free moment to himself. He was the world's. He didn't have Michael Jackson time. He was Thriller. And that's what Truman would probably end up being like. He would be a a caged rat um, in front of talk shows for the rest of his life. And the alternate ending that they did not film was where Truman actually did end up in the control room and he ends up attacking Kristoff and nearly strangling him. Really? It's a, really a fight. A fight and uh, mm. where he nearly strangles Kristoff, but ultimately they pull him off and then he and Lauren do end up together in the end. That's That was the non-filmed ending. So I don't know if that makes anybody's differences, but I, I like how the film ended. Well, I think the film ended where it needed to end uh, to be to, to match the tone of the rest of it. I have a ton of questions of what happens next, <laughs> because I mean, this, this was made in an era before, as Lori kind of pointed out before the, the, the boom of reality television and Truman is a celebrity into himself, something that he's not in this world. And he walks out that door and his entire existence is, is over. Is over. It's amplified. And there is no sense of privacy. There's no I, I don't believe in a happily ever after with Lauren, you know, the, as much as they may have had that moment together, is they can't survive in that under that uh, you know, microscope and, and that kind of world. Everybody would be wanting a, a you know, a piece of Truman. You know, let alone the the, the logistics and legality of what what happens next matt talks about the lawsuit against the corporation but you know somebody allowed them to adopt truman and potentially he's 
property, you know, in that regard, because that's who, who owns Truman. There are so many questions I had that this film was not going to want to touch upon, <laughs> which is a, it's a li- which would, 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 would pushes it directly into hardcore drama. You know, that there, there's repercussions to everybody's actions in this, including Truman's that I, I kind of wonder what those, those are that it's simpler just to say, a, you know, a pithy little comment and have him walk through the door with the, in, the kind of implication that he'll live happily ever after. But I, you know, I thought that, as I said, I thought the ending fit the tone of this particular film, but the questions I have w- would almost be a different type of film. And I don't know if they ever wanted to go there. I'm kind of curious, you know, about that alternate ending that they didn't film because that would be interesting to me, uh, but I don't ever buy off on Lauren. He and Lauren living happily ever de- after. I just don't see it as a likely outcome. Really? They, okay. they just ended up together in the alternate ending. Whether they had a happily ever after or not was not part of that. It was just that they ended up in the control room together finally. Yeah. I, I just see that the, the two of them. I mean, I just see Truman imploding. You know, that how how can you go from you were just mild mannered Truman to everybody in the world knows you and there is no place that you can't go or someone wouldn't know who you are and never be able to escape that aspect. That is something that you had no participation in willingly and that you probably don't want to be involved with ever again. And I, I, I would be very skeptical of Truman's ability to survive in that kind of world. <laughs> well, yeah, I never thought of that. But I mean, Jim Carrey almost did the same thing. He just stopped acting for many years and yeah. grew a really big shaggy beard. Yeah. I mean, so, yeah, he's disappeared for a while. Now he's, I mean, he's come back in recent times, but yeah, there was a whole period there where he, he had a bit of a break. H- has he come back, Shane? Really? Sonic and Sonic 2? I mean, is that really considered a comeback at this point? Time? Oh, the television show Kidding is really oh, yeah, good true. if you've not seen that, it. That was good. I did um, enjoy that. Yeah, and you're right. He sort of, I guess, hasn't come back as big because Dumb and Dumber 2 and Sonic and that are not great films. And he's in um, he's in Saturday Night Live where he was playing Joe Biden for a while as well, which I didn't see, but I hear it was good. So, yeah, he's still around, which is great. His My political cartoons, been- yeah. My sons have been raving about Sonic. If it's any help to his career, yeah, it it was Jim Carrey, Jim Carrey of old. I mean, it was a, just a step more serious than Ace Ventura, but that ain't very that was much. really old, like in 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 living color old. Yeah. So, all right, uh, films legacy nominated for three Academy Awards, winning none. Best actor in a supporting role, Ed Harris lost to James Coburn Coburn for Affliction. Uh, best director Peter Weir lost to Steven Spielberg for Saving Private Ryan, and best writing screenplay written directly for the screen lost to the film Shakespeare in Love. I do remember Jim Carrey doing a presentation at the Academy Awards this year. It was probably the funniest thing in the awards. I remember him coming out to present an award. Don't remember the award, but I remember him going, "I'm here to present uh, best art direction," and that's all I'm here for. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> he knew he wasn't going to win. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he was, uh, yeah, he was, uh, he wasn't even nominated. Uh, so. Oh, that's right. He wasn't either. Yeah. And he's like, yep, going to present this award and could just go home right afterwards. Nothing to do. <laughs> so, he won the Golden Globe. He won the Golden Globe. Didn't get nominated for Oscar. 
Carey, uh, Jim Carrey, Ed Harris, and the score. Oh, we just talked about the score. All won Golden Globes that year, and Jim Carrey won the next year uh, for uh, Man on the Moon for uh, for in the best dramatic uh, category. AFI had this oh. in 2006. Uh, True, the Truman Show was one of the films nominated for the Hundred Years Hundred Cheers list. Did not make the ultimate final hundred. It is currently number 168 on IMDb's top 250 films list. In June 2010, Entertainment Weekly named Truman as one of the 100 greatest characters in the last 20 years. Uh, I thought this was an interesting statistic. It has nothing to do with movie, but uh, a Joel Gold, a psychiatrist at the Bellevue Hospital Center, revealed that by 2008, he had met five patients with schizophrenia. Uh, and had heard of another 12 who believed that their lives were reality television shows. They named the syndrome, the Truman show delusion after the film. <laughs> so, and uh, it was made on a budget of $60 million and it grossed over $264 million worldwide. Rotten tomatoes has it at 95% critics and 89% audience. And that is the legacy on the Truman show. So uh, is, uh, can I just ask is Bellevue hospital in America or in the U S yes, it's in New York. Uh, only in America, then. That would happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, we don't have as many mates just to talk about our problems. A fake condition, yeah. Fake condition just to become hungry for publicity. <laughs> All right, Laurie, uh, what do you think of the film's legacy, and would you put The Truman Show in your top 100? I, th- I think the legacy is appropriate. That was a tough year to be up for an Oscar. A lot of good movies that year. I really enjoyed this film and it's i enjoyed how different it is but it is not in my top 100 i just don't have room matt i'm with laurie that was a tough year i don't think there's any shame in not not coming away with with an oscar that year where i disagree with laurie is that this is in my top 100 i think this is a very entertaining movie it's a very unique movie it's a very well acted it's very well put together the sets are a lot of fun to uh, to experience as you go throughout the movie, kind of constructing this uh, set as a set. I've seen this movie uh, quite a few times, and it's it's always very entertaining every time. So, in my top 100. Shane? Yeah, Matt's right. I've seen it a few times, too, and it's, it's, bet, it's probably better each time I watch it. But it has been a long time since I sat down and watched it from start to finish. And it's staggeringly good. It's a 9 out of 10 movie for me. Uh, The legacy, I mean, that's a good legacy to have, but I do think that Jim deserved at least Oscar recognition. He didn't have to win, but he should have been nominated, I think. And it's like a 1998 version of George Orwell's 1984. Really, it's Big Brother, before Big Brother. Loved this film. It's in my top 100, but... It could get moved because, like Laurie, there's a lot in my hundreds. <laughs> yeah. At this point, it's in my 100. All right. Well, I like Jim Carrey. I really I really like Peter Weir. I think he's an underappreciated director. And he's Australian, too, isn't he? Oh, Peter Weir's Aussie. Yeah, he's an Australian yeah. Um, director. Yeah. Uh, I sat next to him, well, one seat away from him at the 1989 Batman premiere in Sydney. He was there. And sat right near him. Um, and another Aussie in it, too, was Terry Camilleri. You know how they had um, different people watching the show, like the security guards and, you know, the people at the diner and that? Yeah. You remember the, the guy in the bath? That's 
he was that's Terry Camilleri, and oh. also played Nap- Napoleon in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. <laughs> I didn't catch that. <laughs> but, Fun fact. All right, um, you know, this, but despite all that, I, I think the film's a good film, but I've never understood the appeal of this. That it it does it does not resonate with me as much. Even back in the day, this is only about the third time I've seen it, and I, I and I like it. What I do like about it is I like seeing Jim Carrey do something serious because I I think he's an exceptional actor with an a, amazing range that unfortunately he does not get to explore as often as he should. And uh, I, I like to see him get out and do some heavily dramatic performances because I think he's really good in it. I yeah you know it, it's interesting to see this now and see you know Paul Giamatti in a small role. You know, Laura Linney was uh, obviously she was not an unknown to me at that point, but, you know, is a better known actress now than she was back then. I mean, there's there's a stellar cast surrounding it. Ultimately, not my top 100. I don't I, and I don't want to say this is a bad film. I, I think it was a film that it's either I, I remember when it came out on video. And there were people, it was a very polarizing film. People who loved it and said it was one of the greatest films they've ever seen, literally said it was one of the greatest films I've ever seen. And then people who came in and said, I stopped watching it because I thought it was utter crap. And I just thought it was weird. And really, and, and it was, and I got, and I, I got that. I understood why people did. I didn't think it was utter crap, but I could see where it just didn't appeal to a certain audience. And ultimately it's, I, it's a good movie. Not my top 100. I'm not surprised it's in Matt's, Shane's, or Bobby's, but I'm also surprised it's not. I'm not surprised it's not in Lori's because she just doesn't have any space left. It's you know she's 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 asking to borrow my picks now, so it's never going to happen. But <laughs> <laughs> all right, but Bobby has it's Bobby's pick, so he gets the final word. Well, I I have seen this several times, and I have to say this is one of the better movies that actually tells the future. Uh, or or puts it on screen because this was well before the reality TV juggernaut that's going on 20 years later today. So I think that this should at least get credit for, for that, uh, seeing the future and, and putting it on screen in, in an extremely entertaining way. So I thought that was well done. Um, to answer Matt's question about the sets, um, this is actually a real town that they just moved in, mowed the lawns, and said, roll them. Um, it's an it's a actual town called Seaside, Florida, and they only made – they only built a couple of uh, city center facades, and that's it. Every one of these houses are real. They People live in them today. And, Even the uh, it, picket fences. The picket fences are a CCNRs, the, the covenants, conditions, and restrictions for the subdivision. Every fence – on the entire street has to be different has to be different than any other offense on the entire street so it's not just you and the neighbors just flip flop each other nope if they have if they use a, a white picket here then they got to use a you know a, a different top or whatever all mm. of the fences on the entire length of the street have to be different and it, the one guy built a 70 acre city himself and this is what came out of it they're all three-quarter sized construction it's literally like a movie set but it's not it's very real so i thought that was cool but i really love this movie and to be honest the, every time i watch it i i, I appreciate it I, pre, I appreciate it more each time i watch it and this viewing 
it moved it significantly up my top 100. So it's closer to my top 25 now than than my lower half. So I, I'm I very much love this film. I have the shooting script that I've read, and it's there are parts that it's even though it's shooting script it's different than in the film. And I think there are parts that I wish they would have put into the film that would have probably explained it a little bit more. But otherwise, I thought this was a, a near flawless film from a, uh, a storytelling standpoint, and everybody in it uh, did a, an astounding job, especially Jim Carrey. He really does, does deserve more credit than he got from the Academy for sure. He deserved a, uh, an award nomination, and uh, he, he really – he did great. But no, I, I love this film, and yes, it will be in my top 100 forever. All right. Well, that does it for this month's review of The Truman Show. Thanks again for joining us and listening to our little monthly podcast. If you've had a good time, the fun doesn't have to stop here. As I stated before, you can follow us on Pinterest or Twitter at MH Memories. On either one of those social media outlets, you can keep yourself informed about our occasional written film reviews and film summaries, news on upcoming theatrical releases and trailers, and information on many upcoming podcasts on the MHN Podcast Network. Once again, don't forget to subscribe to our account on YouTube, where we're now releasing our podcasts exclusively. Uh, Once there, if you subscribe to our account, you can get updates as to when we post new material. Give us a like or a dislike, or possibly even leave a comment about either the films we are reviewing or a suggestion for a film that you think it should be in the top 100 films of all time. As stated before, we love to hear the feedback that is positive, but we appreciate any feedback that we can get from any listeners of the show. Well, that does it for this episode of Movie House Memories. Join us next time when it's once again my pick for one of the greatest films of all time, and I'm nominating 1989's When Harry Met Sally with Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan. Until then, uh, I'm Patrick. In case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. Good night. (laughs) I'm just going to enjoy this refreshing Coca-Cola beverage in my comfortable (laughs) Lazy Boy chair for no particular reason at all. (laughs) Uh, take it easy everyone bye for now and we'll see you all next time at our house podcast is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. The theme music for Movie House Memories, Hiding Your Reality, is provided courtesy of Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com under a Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 license. All original content of this podcast is the intellectual property of the MHM Podcast Network, Movie House Memories, and Fuzzy Bunny Slippers Entertainment, LLC, unless otherwise noted.